Web page also suggests you're working on another project, mm -hmm. something about parasite <laughs> and the American agrarian crisis. Yeah. Uh huh. Talk to us about that if you could. Um, yeah, that's just a fascinating project, and I'm on sabbatical now, and I'm not working on that project. I kind of wish I was because, as you see in my career, I've changed what I've done, and so now I'm kind of moving away from sexuality. <laughs> One project I am working on does deal with sexuality. But Parasite, and, and I've done some gender analysis in what I've written so far about Parasite uh, and the agrarian crisis, but it actually goes back to when I was working on my dissertation, which was became my first book on environmental history in this community that I studied. I found this some fascinating information about um, this parasite case that took place in 1893 and a young man uh, about 18 years old um, killed his mother and father as well as a, a neighbor who happened to be at the house at the time. I, I tucked that away and I thought one day I would go back to that project and over the years I did little bits and pieces of research um, uh, on it. Um, and then when I finished book number three, you know, I, I started to deal with it a little bit more. Then I actually had a fellowship to do some research on it. I published a couple articles based on it. Um, and since my original research, I've cast the net more broadly to try to contextualize this parasite by looking at parasites, um, children who kill their parents, um, across the United States. Uh, in the 1890s, especially rural parasites. Um, the agrarian crisis, populism, was really never something I found particularly interesting. And I, this is going to be awful for a historian to admit, especially a Western historian, but you know, teaching my surveys and having to mind my time and what I could spend time on. It was easy for me to pass by the populace of all things. Um, and I always felt that way about the late 19th century generally. The Gilded Age just, ugh. But all my work tends to be on that period. Um, and so now I'm going back to populism and the agrarian crisis. Um, so I'm really kind of interested. Getting into this parasite, I was really struck by the financial problems that this young man's parents had. Uh, they were farmers. They never made a go of it. They were children of the valorized pioneer generation in Oregon. Um, and so I became, I just became quite interested. I, I was especially interested in childhood and boyhood. And that kind of is something that comes out of my second book because um, I dealt a lot with childhood sexuality or how children use um, sexually in the 1890s and early 1900s in the United States, especially by migrant laboring adult males. Um, so I, I became quite interested in boyhood, something that people haven't written a whole lot on. Um, and so all these kind of interests came together um, as I started to look into the, the family dynamics. And I realized that there is a lot about this parasite that can be traced to the depression that this family was experiencing. So, so that started opening up uh, my view to other parasites among farming families in the 1890s. 
Um, so through parasite, to look at family problems, and since most parasites are, are committed by boys, to look at boyhood in this transitional period of people who are agrarians and who are confronting changes in society, and many of them are leaving the farm to go to cities and that sort of thing. And it's led me into, you know, reflection on death and how people deal with death and um, so, and then reading Drew Faust's book, you know, on the Civil War has kind of um, opened up to me broader cultural, uh, the interest in trying to figure out, you know, bro more broadly speaking, how culture deals with parasite in a situation where families are literally and figuratively under fire in, in rural America. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. I will too. It's, <laughs> it's a fun project. I love talking to parents about parasite, actually. <laughs> so I'm trained as a geographer, not necessarily mm -hmm. as a historian. And so yeah. um, one of the things from the work that I've looked at from you is you run this balance between social theory and thinking about some big social theory kinds of ideas and doing the rich kind of historical storytelling that historians like to say. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if you maybe just take a couple minutes to think about how you find that balance. Oh boy, I don't know. <laughs> um, and are you talking about this third book? Um, it looks just, like just you're in general, I, I, the reason why I know is just Oh, like, a triple so line effect, speak express. Yeah. Um, just... Right. Well, you know, when I first started writing as a historian, you know, you know, I was 26 when I finished my PhD, um, and my undergraduate training was pretty um, traditional, and so graduate school was a real shock to me. And I began my work at. University of California, Irvine, which especially at that time was the most sociological department perhaps in the country. I mean, that's their big thing was critical theory. And so I was really introduced to larger theory. But the problem I've always had, and especially with queer theory, is that it tends to be rather opaque. Um, and it's just not accessible to people. It's often not even accessible to me. And I'm relatively learned. I mean, there are many things I do in my life. So I'm an intellectual, but I also do things that are not intellectually based. So, you know, I'm perhaps not the best read historian. But um, I, I want my book, my writings to be able to speak, especially the older I've become, to speak to more people, to be based in some sort of theory, uh, because I think that's really important for helping us ha understand to make sense of all these little stories, but to try to use, especially in this last book, the stories as a way to really get people to read. One of my favorite reviews that I just came across that it wasn't a review in a, a journal, but somebody wrote something about it on Goodreads or something like that is, you know, they found chapter five 
in the book, which is the one where I really go into the sexological stuff, the really detailed sexology, which is most people would find harder and more opaque. And although I'm not really dealing a lot with sexological theories, just how sexologists understood sexuality. And this writer said, you know, I just found chapter five to be really unbearably boring. Um, and you know, chapter five is how I got into this project. That's how I first was thinking about Frederick Jackson Turner's theories as heteronormalizing theories, and that they could be placed along the sexologists of the period, and there's a transference of knowledge and cultural knowledge as well as actual um, research between them. Um, but I, and that's, I actually wanted to open with that chapter. But as I wrote more and more, I really realized that that was going to be something that should probably come at the end, that it's the human stories first that can in themselves tell us, I, that can reflect these broader theories without actually hammering people over the head too much. But I think in this last book is when I feel like I've, writing is always so difficult for me. It was so hard. But doing this last book, it really was something I felt so satisfied as a creative process. And it's not like I ignored objective historical fact or what passes as objective <laughs> historical fact, but it was, it was an organic book that really evolved from a few stories and an attempt to write an article to something that I thought had some literary flair that, and so I want to appeal to people, to more people in my work. And still, it's a very scholarly thing. I can't get away from that because that's how I'm trained. What did they call it in the Western Historical Quarterly? Lovely and wry. Lovely and sometimes wry. Lovely and sometimes <laughs> wry, there you go. Well, I hope I like to incorporate a sense of humor. And I think this type of, when you deal with sexuality and gender, they make people uncomfortable. And so I like to play on people's discomfort by juxtaposition, odd ways of looking at things, throwing in something that's completely oddball that catches people off guard. And, you know, so sexuality lends itself to jokes. <laughs> it does. Because <laughs> it's. <laughs> well, I know, think that's, that's maybe a nice note to wrap up on. Okay. But, uh, we, should, we should all be funnier. Let's aim to be funnier.